0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Good Wolf Radio. It's Jerry Scarlato. Today, we're recording from our downstairs office after I got done with the workout because we just realized that we forgot to record the intro for this video. Um, This is with David Robson, the author of The Expectation Effect, which is a fantastic book that teaches us about how our mind's keeping us from achieving our goals. David goes into big detail about new research that he's found about how our mind keeps us from our exercise goals, our nutrition goals, our relational goals, and so many other areas. So without further ado, remember, go get this book, The Expectation Effect, get your notebook out, and be ready for this interview with David Robson. Um, So before we actually get to the book, I started doing a little looking around on the interwebs to see what else I could find. And I want to talk about procrastination. Um, how to stop procrastinating and start getting things done. Mm, yeah. uh, so you wrote this article on, I think this was New Scientist.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, 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 that's one that. That,
0: that sound yeah. about right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Quite recently, I think like a couple of months ago, maybe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There. So I, I appreciate this article because procrastination is like my favorite form of trying to work around fear of failure, which is like one of the very first paragraphs that you have in the article. So I'll quote from the article, uh, studies show that the higher our fear of failure, the more likely we are to procrastinate. If we then beat ourselves up, it is only going to raise our levels of stress and anxiety, which may cause us, uh, to look more, uh, look for more relief and temporary distractions. The disrupt uh, the disrupting our um sorry disrupting our task to the result is a vicious cycle of self-sabotage so like I said that's one of my favorite forms of self-sabotage I guess is the best way to put that um, why did this topic pique your interest is that something that you find yourself doing as well or um, was it just something that you've heard a lot of people talk about
1: No, I mean it is something that really bothers me, um, especially when I'm writing something that really matters to me. Um, It's like you said, it's that fear of failure. Um, You know, if my book, say I will manage to find any other task to do but writing my book. And often my procrastination is is a kind of productive procrastination. So I'm often doing something useful. You know, like writing a journalistic article arranging interviews, you know, all of that kind of thing. But sometimes you just have to sit down and actually do the thing that you're passionate about. And that's what I find I you know, tend to put off. So I was just super interested in what the research can tell us about ways to avoid this.
0: What have you found that works for you? So there's a couple of things that you say in the article, which we can get to in a second, which will also lead us to the next article that I want to talk about. Um, but did you have any things that you did before that that you you know that you kind of found worked for you or uh once you got into the research you were like hey i'm going to start implementing these things and you found that those things were very helpful
1: yeah i mean the thing that i've done recently for the last couple of years is kind of setting myself arbitrary deadlines that are normally you know considerably um before the actual hard right Um, Mm -hmm. and what i find that does is actually it reduces that sense of anxiety that I would feel that is really bad for the creative process. So, you know, even if I do do a bit of procrastination and then I actually get on with writing, um, what I find is that then knowing I have this kind of extra buffer zone just makes it so much easier rather than feeling that I'm really pushing against the deadline. I mean, I know for some people like the deadline is the major motivation, like they mm-hmm. thrive on that stress at the last minute, but I'm the total opposite I get in this mm-hmm. kind of panic that's very unproductive, so mm-hmm. yeah, just kind of trying to set my own schedules and knowing that I've got a bit of relief if I do find writing a piece harder than it, would, um, than it, it should be, um, that actually just kind of calms me down and then it means that I kind of get on a lot more quickly, um, so that's my, my first major Um, kind of strategy to dealing with procrastination. And actually, I think just the more, the further I've got along in my career, the more I realize that like the first draft of what I'm writing is never gonna be good, or, or you know, you can't predict whether it's gonna be good or not. But what is much better is to have just something in front of you that you can work with than having nothing at all. And again, that just reduces that anxiety. It's not like it has to come out perfectly the first time. It just has to be in a state at which I can kind of work at it, rewrite, edit, you know, look for new avenues of research if I need to. Mm. Um, I find that very comforting to know.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I, you mentioned the person that sets a deadline and then waits to the last minute, and that's what drives them to do that. That would definitely be me. I've tried to, like, be the person who starts earlier, make sure to, like, get ahead of the game, and actually get the project done in some sort of like structure you know not waiting to the last minute until you know deadlines tomorrow kind of thing uh and i think it's been helpful but yeah i you know you know people are people and we all have our own isms and for some it's like you like that buffer and i i can i can get within a couple of hours and then find like the energy to just like boost through it. So it's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what I think we're learning with psychology more and more It's that there aren't any hard and fast rules that are going to work for everyone. And we have to actually embrace our individuality. So, you know, you can have these studies that do show that on average, these techniques work, but it's definitely going to be that some techniques work better for some people than others.
0: Well, and that brings me to the next article, the pleasure principle is A Little Bit of Indulgence, The Secret to Success. This one you wrote for The Guardian, I believe. Um, And this one, I believe, is a perfect example of what I like to call the pendulum problem. In fitness, well, in in anything in life, really. People say, hey, this is the thing that you gotta do, or this is the thing that's working, or this is the study that comes out, and so everyone swings real hard to this side, and then there's a point of diminishing returns, just like, anything in life. And people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the thing that we need to do. We need to relax. We need to take it easy. So the pendulum swings real hard to the other side. And so I feel like that's exactly what this article kind of was portraying because in the marshmallow test, which is like the infamous, like perfect self-control discipline, like this is what happened when these people, you know, grew up after they were able to withstand the marshmallow at whatever age they were Six years old, I think. Yeah. yeah exactly so uh this was very interesting can you tell me more about just kind of like this article in general what got you interested in in the finding about uh this particular piece um and then what you got out of it yourself
1: yeah i mean i think it's like you said like um psychology tends to go from you know, one extreme to the other, and for decades the extreme had been this kind of very puritanical view of self-control. That it's all about delayed gratification, and any kind of indulgence is damaging, because the idea was, you know, a small indulgence quickly snowballs into a larger indulgence. So, you know, it might be helpful for you to have like five minutes break in the middle of your working day to kind of, you know, muck about on the internet, but. The the problem seemed to be that people can't stop at just five minutes, and they waste the whole afternoon. Or you have like a one piece of cake, and then you know you eat the whole cake, and your diet goes out no the doubt. window, and you stop following your diet, you know, in the days and weeks afterwards. Um, and you know, there's recent research really questioning this view. Um, so there's research showing that actually the most successful people, whether they're kind of students uh, trying to get a high mark in their degrees, or whether it's uh, dieters trying to lose weight or exercisers trying to meet their fitness goals um, is that you know we can all be a little bit more flexible. Um, but the key thing here seems to be that you plan your indulgences in advance, rather than just kind of trying to keep up that willpower and then giving in to the temptation and then having all of that sense of shame and guilt that can come with that. Whereas if you just up front you know in your working day and you're just like I'm gonna spend you know half an hour midday doing something I really enjoy that has nothing to do with work or if you're on a diet and you set one day a week where you can just treat yourself to whatever you want to eat um, you know those people seem to be more successful um, and I think it goes back to what we were saying about you know this self-sabotage the fear of failure you know we have all of these negative um, emotions that Um, we experience when we're trying to strive towards our goals and um, if we you know we have that fear of failure and then if we do fail or fail according to these kind of arbitrary criteria that we've set up you know that shame actually makes us feel so bad it really saps our motivation to continue that's why our small indulgences tend to snowball into larger indulgences. But just by planning in advance, that is one way to kind of avoid that. Um, Another way is just to show yourself more self-compassion. And there's loads of research now showing that people who are excessively self-critical are actually worse for things like um, uh, procrastination and just sticking to their goals in general. Whereas actually, if you can show yourself self-compassion and, you know, you don't keep on beating yourself up for wasting an afternoon, but you just realise the next day you can kind of make up for that time. Or if you're on a diet and you do have a cake because it's one of your colleagues' birthdays, but you're like, well, that was fine. I wanted to share that moment with them, but tomorrow I'll just kind of go back to normal without any harm uh, done overall to my goals. Those people are the ones who really succeed. So actually we can just be a bit easier on ourselves. We don't have to, um, you know, kind of... um, have that negative voice in our Mm. head, like it's kind of a teacher from school kind of telling us off all the time. We can actually just be Mm -hmm. a bit more grown up about this, you know, our whole kind of outlook on on meeting our goals.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, that's perfect. And you talk about stigmatization in the book. I think that that's, I mean, that's a big, big, big part of it. Just labeling things, good, bad, whatever, evil, you know, just, just the label itself, the thought itself, Failure being bad, success being good, those ideas in and of themselves are what cause a lot of this. I thought it was it was funny what they called it in uh, the actual study that you referenced in this article, Planned Hedonic Deviation Activities. I love that name.
1: <laughs> right, exactly, or the idea of like um, strategic mm-hmm. indulgence as well. You know, that, that's what we need to do is to recognize that actually... Um, a bit of pleasure in life is what makes life worth living and it's crazy if we're feeling guilty about that. But also, I just think it's about seeing the big picture. It's that trajectory that you're looking for. Whatever goal you're reaching for, you're looking for kind of improvements day after day after day. But it doesn't matter if one of those days you you know, you know, fail to meet up to, to your goals. It's if week after week, you're kind of getting closer to what you want to achieve. And I think that's what we often forget. We think that one small deviation is the end of the world. It's like we're catastrophizing what should really be something quite negligible. And I think we just need to get over that.
0: Yeah. You can call it, I mean, the 80% rule or 90% rule, depending on how strict you want to be. But you know, if you do what you say you're going to do 80% of the time, or you follow through with your, you know, the process that you're trying to put in place 80% of the time like likely is you're you know, you're still going to get there. You're, you may if you slip up more often it's going to be a little slower. If you slip up slip up less often it's going to be a little faster, but at the end of the day you always have you you can always make a choice in the next moment. And I think that that's why people struggle. Well, I might as well wait till Monday to start again or I might as well wait till next month or next year or you know whatever so on and so forth. And that that kills dreams more than anything else.
1: Yeah, exactly. And actually what we can do there is kind of make, take advantage of this um, psychological phenomenon called the um, fresh start effect. And that's mm. essentially what you're saying, which is, that you know, like we like to have a kind of concrete landmark on which to start our goals at fresh. So mm. for most people, that's going to be the first of January of each year. Actually, a similar thing can work if you, you kind of see the end of your university semester as being like um, the fresh start for your new goals, or even just the beginning mm-hmm. of the week, the beginning of the month, your mm-hmm. birthday, you know, the day after Easter. Any of these things you can set up as this kind of new beginning. And I think people who have good self-control are really good at doing that and saying, "Well, I might not have achieved what I wanted, you know, in this chapter of my life, but I can just start a new chapter on this." kind of relatively arbitrary date um so yeah we should definitely constantly be looking for new starts rather than just thinking of like the first of january as being the only Mm -hmm. time to make good uh, resolutions
0: Mm -hmm. and that's really what it's you know i think self-discipline is misconstrued as what this article kind of not, not your article, but what, yeah. what people look at it as is like, you have to be strict. You can't be happy. You can't do anything. Joy. Like you got to be this serious, stoic, like don't enjoy anything in life. And that's discipline. But discipline, like you said, is really like make a plan, say you're like, go have the cake, but then get back on it the next time. And then go have something else, go do something else, get back on it right after that. And that's really discipline it's just following through with your word, following through with the process.
1: Right, exactly. And also, it's like um, like you said, like we, we kind of think that we have to make things as hard as possible for ourselves, you know, like um, as gruelling as it can be, the no pain, no gain kind of attitude. But effective exercisers are also just really good at choosing the exercises that they enjoy, so something that they find fun, whereas ineffective exercises will go to the gym and they will only select kind of the workout that is going to be most gruelling. And that might be better for kind of you know, on that particular day, they might burn more calories, but they're far less likely to go to the gym like the next day and to keep Keep it up day after day. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you do something that's enjoyable, even if you're not burning quite as much as you, you know, could optimally do, if you do that day after day after day, you're going to get to your goal far more quickly than if you keep on kind of falling off the wagon because you just hate it and you can't summon up the motivation.
0: That's good. Um, so what about, Let's jump into the book. I, what if I came to you and I said, well, what if I just start thinking positively about this? What if I just was a positive thinker and just started saying, well, I love this and uh, I love exercise and I love nutrition. Like That's what yeah. the world tells us we can do. So yeah, I why mean, don't I just would, do that?
1: That would be great <laughs> if that felt authentic to you and you really believed it. But I mean, I tend to kind of um, avoid that kind of uh advocating that kind of mindset because Mm. i think and why is that um, in general like we like we have to be realistic about the situations we're facing you know there's going to be difficulties we have challenges you know there's stuff that's beyond our control and i don't think for many people we can be this kind of pollyannaish figure who's just always optimistic And, you know, then if we move into kind of movements like manifestation, you know, this new trend where it's all about just visualising good stuff coming to you and then through this mystical law of attraction, it it kind of supports you. Um, You know, I don't... I think that can be useful for some people for, you know, helping them to be proactive maybe in their life, seeing opportunities. But um, in general, I'm quite sceptical of that kind of idea as well. Um, I don't think the scientific evidence supports it. And also, um, you know, it can kind of set you up for disappointment, um, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, I think we, we have to recognize that we have to take positive ac- you know, actions ourselves and mm-hmm. our behaviors have to reflect our goals. So when also I talk, when I talk about, about the expectation effect, it's a bit more specific than just like positive thinking mm-hmm. in general, it's much more about specific beliefs, about specific outcomes, and then, you know, they have been charted through specific mechanisms, and it could be changes to perception, to behavior and to our physiology, you know, that's Mm -hmm. the science of the expectation effect is that our beliefs can shape outcomes through all of those mechanisms. But they're very carefully defined, you know, and they've been objectively, experimentally studied. So, you know, my book kind of explores these expectation effects in lots of different areas of life from, you know, medicine and recovery from illness to exercise, dieting educational performance, work performance, even how we age. But in each case, there's good objective science and a good scientific explanation for how that could occur.
0: Yes. Uh, One of the quotes that I found in an interview you did with Chris Williamson, I believe maybe last year sometime on Modern Wisdom, uh, you said, our expectations that we have today are shaping our our reality tomorrow. I think that that's a phenomenal Uh, just a very succinct way of stating like what you believe is what you're going to get, what you think, who you are, what you see, what you view through your eyes is what you're going to get in front of you. So uh, that was very succinct and a very great way to say that at the end of the book, you talk about how just your beliefs in aging and your beliefs in what aging looks like um, will dictate potentially when you die. That was right. that was yeah. very eye-opening. So can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Um, but, you know, it has been very carefully studied. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking about people's beliefs in their 20s and 30s and 40s, influencing... Their that was the incredible part. That, you know... <laughs> 70, 80, 90, and it's hmm. not just how long they live, although the difference in lifespan between people with the positive beliefs about aging and the negative beliefs about aging is about seven years, so, you know, really incredible. That's incredible. And it's also how, how well you age, so it's about... You know how likely you are to get Alzheimer's disease. Uh, people with the negative beliefs are about twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's disease as those with the positive beliefs, mm. and you know that's measurable through the build-up of those amyloid plaques within the brain. So it's not just the kind of cognitive symptoms showing themselves; is actually the uh, biological mechanism by which the Alzheimer's is developing. Um, and you know, so the, the, stu- the first study came out in 2002. Since then. There have been lots of replications and then lots of studies kind of looking at the mechanism. And again, it is a mixture of behavior and physiology. So the behavioral mechanism is kind of obvious, but also really profound when you think about it. And that's just that if you expect to, to kind of um, have some advantages to aging, so if you see it as a time of growth and wisdom, better decision making, um, you know, time with your family, new opportunities after you retire you're just, just going to be more motivated to look after your health so you mm. eat more healthily. you're going to stay more active you know it's changing the health behaviors that we know influence aging um we know that aging is within our control to a certain degree if we look after our bodies um, but then equally if you um think about the stress that can come with aging then your beliefs about aging are going to shape that prolonged stress response mm um you know put simply if you are really negative and you see aging as being purely about decline and disability you know all of those tasks that you do day to day things like going to the shops meeting new people you know traveling to a new location you know they're going to feel a lot more stressful you're going to worry that you're going to forget people's names and forget your way get lost um have a fall and be injured um and you know that sense of vulnerability that increases your stress response so you each day your levels of cortisol are just rising very slowly and over years you can see this kind of steady increase in cortisol the stress hormone um, interesting and then that's linked to things like inflammation within the body and we know that long-term inflammation can damage our cells; it creates wear and tear on our tissues and then that predisposes us to illness if you have the positive view of aging if you're seeing all these new opportunities and you're still excited and you don't feel vulnerable you actually can see some strengths that you've acquired as you age, you're just not gonna have that prolonged stress response. And actually what you see with those people is that once they retire, their levels of cortisol um, actually fall, they drop as they get older because they're kind of relaxing into their retirement. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe they don't have some of those stresses that they would have had when they were working and they had their young families and you know, had less time to enjoy themselves. Um, and that means that they're less predisposed to illness. And, you know, day to day, it might not make such a huge difference, but over years, you know, that is what increases your risk or decreases your risk of Alzheimer's disease or cardiovascular disease and ultimately of, of an early death.
0: Well, in the years, that's the hard thing to appreciate because our, our average demographic at Thribology, which is the facility that I own and operate, well, I own, I say, I operate the, the team basically. They, they support me and they probably own more of it than I do, but, you know, right. <laughs> I like to go along for the ride at least. Um, we're probably 45 to 60 years old is our average demographic. And so a lot of the people who walk through the door are people who are saying exactly what you're talking about. Oh, if I would have started this 20 years ago, then, you know, XYZ, I would feel better. I wouldn't be in a situation that I'm in. And a lot of them also have those same sort of mentality about aging. And and I fight back very hard whenever I hear things like, oh, it's just me getting old. You know, I got this thing in my shoulder, I got this thing in my knee, or I started forgetting where my keys were, and oh, it's just me getting old. I fight back very hard um, against phrases like that because of exactly what you're talking about. You get exactly what you expect. What I found interesting, I did a... Um, an aging series on the podcast recently. And I went and I found this review paper. Um, They had gone back and reviewed the literature over like the first from like 1900 to like 1950, I believe is what it was, to see how people talked about aging in the literature. And what they found was interesting. Essentially up until like 1940, I believe it was, most of the conversation around aging and most of the literature around aging was, was written by old people, like people actually going through the experience, people actually living the life of aging. And then right around 1940, 1945, after World War II, it switched to the medical community talking about aging and talking about the disease, diseases of aging and talking about, you know, this, that, and the other thing and people being people with histories and medical histories and not people with experiences. And I think like my belief is like that was that alone is because that shaped society's view around aging. It's shifted society's view around aging. And that alone, I think, has made a big downturn in what people believe is possible in your 60s, even like we have 50s and 60 year olds here who are talking about how not decrepit, I guess, but like how not in good shape they are. And I don't think that I can get in healthy again. And this, that, the other thing. And I'm just like, oh, I just want to shake them. But anyway, that was a little long diatribe to, uh.
1: I mean, I think you're totally right. And I think this is like, you know, there's so much ageism in our culture now, you know, because like you said, because we're not really listening to old people's experiences. We're kind of projecting our own fears on, you know, older people. and that is, you know, then it's not surprising then that people start to internalize those beliefs. And it's, you know, they, I think there was, you know, research showing that actually, like, sometimes it's the older people who now are the kind of biggest defenders of these ageist stereotypes because, you know, they've had a whole lifetime of absorbing that. But, you know, there are those people who have the positive views too, and they can be this kind of inspiration to us. You know, I spoke to, like, um, this um, lady, Paddy Jones, who's like an acrobatic salsa dancer, like the world's oldest. You know, she's in her 80s. She only started, like, dancing professionally in her 60s. And she's has wow. gone from strength to strength. And you watch the videos of her, and it's amazing. And she's just having the time of her life as well, you know. Um, and, you know, that's obviously, that's not for everyone. But I think there are loads of ways that we can all push ourselves out of our comfort zone so we can start questioning those assumptions that society has imposed on us. And just doing that kind of day after day, that's going to help you to challenge the beliefs and to change your own behaviors and to find a new lease of life.
0: Um, so I also found it interesting on the chapter about nutrition. Uh, you talk about just, so we talk about packaging and stuff here and how packaging could be deceiving, using words like healthy and low fat and this, that, and the other thing. But what you're talking about is how specific words will dictate basically your physiological or biological response to the food, which is very interesting. So can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, so there was this famous study looking at people's um, physiological reaction to milkshakes. and. Essentially, the researchers were measuring this hormone called ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. It stimulates appetite. And if you have like, a good meal, you might find that ghrelin does peak beforehand, because you're like, really hungry. You've got this delicious food that's coming to you. And then you know, once you've eaten, like, you, you know you're satisfied. Your body's satisfied. It's got enough energy now, so the ghrelin levels can drop dramatically, because you, no uh, you no longer need to go and like, hunt for more food. <laughs> So that's very established um, that you know we have this kind of peak and then trough in ghrelin when we eat. Um, but what these researchers wanted to do was to see if simply changing the labeling of a milkshake could change that trajectory of the ghrelin, and they found that it did. So they gave participants identical milkshakes on two separate occasions, but you know on one occasion it was labeled as this indulgent, decadent treat, you know, it was full of cream ice cream it was delicious you know it was the kind of thing that you you might feel guilty about eating afterwards but you'd love at the time um and the other um on the other occasion they told them it was this kind of very bland health shake that um you know had i don't know 200 calories not really enough to kind of leave you feeling satisfied and there was no emphasis on the enjoyment they might get out of that um, milkshake what they found was that that labeling whether they saw it as this kind of fulfilling, satisfying, indulgent treat or whether they saw it as this kind of low-fat, low-calorie, fairly joyless um, uh, shake, you know, that determined whether they saw that classic ghrelin response or not. So if they believed it was going to be satisfying, they saw the the rise and fall just as you would after eating a proper meal. But the other people, they, you know, on the other occasions they barely saw any change at all. It just was flat as if they hadn't eaten. Um, now you spoke about deceptive um, labelling and I think that's where this is a real problem, you know if you're having something that's labelled as a health food you have this expectation that actually it's not going to be that filling and that satisfying, but actually it still has a fair number of calories so you're not getting the satisfaction, you're still going to feel hungry afterwards but you've also consumed quite a bit of food, that's the worst outcome for a dieter, to eat loads of calories and feel hungry afterwards and I think that's happening all the time unless we're really careful and conscious
0: about what we're eating that's really good actually and i've never i don't think i've regularly thought about it that specific way we talk about it regularly about just like you know choosing foods in general like you said it's very easy to even the packaging the way the packaging looks uh the words that they put on the packaging the name that they name the product like all of that has a huge psychological impact on whether or not you're going to buy it and whether or not you're going to actually enjoy it you'll like it more if it says certain things, blah 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 blah. But I've never, I've never looked at it s- strictly through like, hey, if you're thinking that it's healthy, it still has a hundred calories per serving or whatever the thing is. So you're probably going to eat more of it, and it may actually lead to you moving away from your goals versus towards your goals.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think there's ways that manufacturers can sometimes create the illusion that something. Is healthier than it really is so it might be labelled low fat but have tonnes of sugar in it and you know that's not a good thing for people to be eating believing that it's a health food and then also having those hunger pangs afterwards because of this kind of altered ghrelin response so yeah we have to be very conscious but I think uh, more than that I just think when we're dieting like there's often this temptation to only choose things with the kind of number of calories that they have, even if it's that like very bland and you know, not satisfying at all. So it doesn't really have that expectation of satisfaction and fulfillment, which is really important for the physiological response. So I think actually, you know, with dieting more so than when we're not dieting, actually incorporating pleasure and celebration and satisfaction into the foods that we're eating is especially important.
0: Yeah. And we don't, and I I believe you hit on this in the book as well, but like, you know, we don't sit down as a family as often anymore, which takes away from the, you know, celebration of food. And because of that, we cook less. And because we cook less, we have to eat more, not have to, but we're eating more processed foods. And then it's just like a downhill spiral from there. So, um, it's it's the system, really, that is kind of like leading us down this path. And it's a tough one to, to put a stop on and turn around. But we have to be aware of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have habits like um, watching TV while we eat. Um, that's a psychological distraction. That means the brain isn't registering how much food it's actually consuming. And again, that's creating this expectation then, a kind of subconscious expectation in that case that we haven't eaten as much as we need. And so there is research showing that, you know, through this kind of degraded memory of what we've eaten, um, distraction while we're eating can then lead us to feel more hungry later on. Um, Mm. We'll actually snack more because the brain hasn't registered that it's already got, you know, enough nutrients.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, just so much around food and nutrition that uh, affects people's health more than we Have any clue for it's much much more uh, in depth than just calories, like you're saying. Right. Um, so talk to me how expectations affect exercise and fitness because there were there was a lot of interesting things in that chapter as well around um, how what you think you're going to get around about out of the exercise affects uh, what you actually get out of it. So talk to me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean there's so much, so much cool science going on in that area. Um, You know, a couple of experiments like really come to mind have been quite kind of transformative, actually, in the way I look at exercise myself. Um, The first one kind of looked at people's perceptions of how fit and healthy they were, like whether they had this kind of natural genetic aptitude to doing exercise, and what the scientists did, they were at Stanford University, they gave all of their participants this kind of um, real genetic test that looked at the CREB1 gene, which is associated with fitness. You know, if you have one version, you might just find exercise a little bit easier than people with another version of the gene. Um, But it's not kind of all-defining, but not many people know that. So I think when you, when people are given this feedback, and they were given sham feedback in this case, about which version they had, you could kind of see it as being, you know, like this, a kind of defining feature of you, that you're either good at sport or you're not good at sport, that you'll find exercise great or you'll hate it. And what they found was that those expectations then determined their stamina on a treadmill, uh, but also their physiological responses to the exercise. Um, so things like how efficiently their lungs were exchanging carbon dioxide and oxygen. And what was interesting was that these expectation effects were often as or more important important than the actual actual gene gene itself. itself. So, So, someone who had the kind of bad Mm -hmm. version of the Mm -hmm. gene, but believed they had had the good version, version. you know, was gonna do better better, potentially than someone who had the good version, but believed believed they had the uh, bad bad version. version. It's, It's, you know, it's very very profound in that way. So, you know, so I think that should tell us all that like, you know, we might carry around these beliefs about our fitness without really having an, any good objective reason for thinking that we're naturally a couch potato. you know some people just believe yeah. from bad experiences in childhood that they're just not going to be good at exercise, but actually you know we can question those assumptions and we can you know try to kind of build up our tolerance of exercise slowly with the knowledge the scientific knowledge that actually everyone is going to respond to exercise eventually mm-hmm. like the more you put in, the more you get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second, the second study, study that I found transformative uh, was um, looking at um, just, just like whether we see an activity, activity as being exercised exercise or, or not. And this, and study, this study was, um, was studying, um, studying uh, hotel, cleaners, hotel cleaners who didn't, didn't really, really see, see their, work their work as being exercised, exercise, but actually, actually it's very physically demanding. demanding, you know, cleaning mm-hmm. windows, moving furniture, you know, hefting mm-hmm. <laughs> like really mm-hmm. heavy yeah, objects on. around. You know, they were getting easily the kind of weekly recommended amount of exercise that the U.S. surgeon general had uh, prescribed for people to live a healthy life, but they just didn't realize it. So these scientists at, at Harvard, they just educated these cleaners about that fact. They told them that actually, you know, you're, you're doing a good workout um, throughout the week and you should uh, be, you know, getting physical benefits out of that. They left around some flyers and posters and, you know, just like, uh, stuff to remind them of this fact, and then visited them a month later to see whether there had been any changes to the health. And there were. Um, you know, the blood pressure had dropped from being kind of problematically high to being within the normal range. They'd even lost a tiny bit of weight. And that didn't seem to be associated with any particular changes to their kind of daily routines. It's not like they were eating healthier or had suddenly signed up to the gym. Um, they just seemed to somehow be... Um, through maybe the mind-body connection, they were kind of benefiting more from that activity that they were doing. And there's, you know, lots of potential pathways. We don't know what all of them could be. It could just be that by feeling good about themselves, they were tolerating stress in their lives a bit better and that that was having these, this you know, benefit to their metabolism. Mm-hmm. We don't know. It could be that they were actually just, you know, putting a bit more effort into their work, a bit more room. But, you know, even that is is worthwhile, a worthwhile change. Yeah. Um, you, know, so you know, so it's definitely like a profound result and it makes me think about you know all of those things that i do in my life that i wouldn't have considered as exercise previously you know like just uh you know walking to the train station um you know playing Mm -hmm. with my friends kids you know if i go to visit them you know doing the housework like doing diy know all of these things like we can just try to appreciate them a bit more
0: well and i think it's appreciating that like movement is is the goal right not just not only exercise like exercise when you do it intentionally generally is going to be more generally is going to be more intense than if you're just not just but if you're you know cutting the grass or you're doing some work around the house or you're doing this that other thing like on average when you go exercise it's going to be more intense therefore generally you're going to get more fitness benefit out of it more health benefit out of it however Movement in general, neat movement, non exercise activity, thermogenesis is going like that makes up the bulk of your day. You can only, like, the average person exercises well, not the average person, let's say the average exerciser exercises an hour, I don't know, three days a week, four days a week, whatever it is. Um, That's four hours out of 168 hours. So your day has a lot of opportunity for movement. And I think that that part gets easily overlooked and that's exactly what you're talking about like looking at every movement as potential benefit to your health can completely open up and potentially revolutionize like your health in general
1: right exactly and i do think you know i think there probably is a kind of mind-body connection thing that's going on here but actually i do think if it has a behavioral benefit and that it's this knowledge is actually just increasing the amount of movement that people do each day you know encouraging them maybe to have a break and to you know, just know, walk just up and down, down their stairs, stairs or whatever, like, you know, go and, you know, clean their windows and actually appreciate that as being a, not, just, not useful, just useful, you know, for you know, the, 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 appearance the appearance of the home, of their but also for their health, health, you know, I think that is also that beneficial. beneficial. Um, um, you know, the science, the science is very clear, actually, that there's no minimum amount minimum of exercise that we can we do um, that will be that beneficial to us. Any extra helps and health anything and that encourages that health has, health has, health has health got to
0: be a good thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting what we're what we're what I'm hearing is like <laughs> these things start to layer on top of each other, right? So you get to a certain age and you start to feel icky and you're like, oh well my age is getting to me. And then you think about starting to work out and you're like, well, I don't know if I can because I don't know if my if I can really improve my health at all. And even if you start to do something, you may be thinking like, I don't know how much I'm actually going to get out of this. I don't know how beneficial it is for me. So it's interesting how these things can start to stack on top of each other. And I don't know, I feel like like the digger, you the further you deep further, you deep, the further you dig the hole like like it's just it's just a hard one to dig out of. And and it's a, something that just a lot of people overlook.
1: Yeah, that's exactly how I it. And so, you know, if we go back to those negative views of aging, um, you know, if you a 60, a 60 and you and want to get fit get but you also you have, also this, have belief this belief that you're going to find it really, really difficult, difficult at the gym, gym. Um, um, and that you're not um, cut, um, cut out for it, you've left it too late. too late. That is going to make going the to make actual um, physical, physical experience, experience of the workout, of the workout more workout painful. painful. Like That research that is really clear that too, that you're going to You know, the pain is going to be greater if you expect it to be greater. So your muscles Mm. are going to ache more. When you feel out of breath, you're going to catastrophize that. And you're going to see that as a sign of failure, which makes you feel a lot worse. And, you know, that might even kind of cause you to feel even more out of breath because you're worried about that you're going to faint or something. So you're kind of working yourself up into this panic. And, you know, the the result of that is going to be that you're not going to want to go back to the gym uh, the day afterwards because it's been such a grueling experience. Whereas if you go with this other attitude that actually, you know, um, any exercise that you do there is beneficial, even if, you know, you're not pushing yourself too hard. But specifically, if you see all of those kind of feelings that you're having as a sign of growth, so actually, you know, the aches and pains and feeling out of breath, you know, that is just a sign that you're pushing your body beyond its comfort zone. And that's what you need to do to, to kind of start building those muscles and, you know, strengthening your heart like, the, like research the research also research shows that then that kind of mindset will, will make the whole experience, the whole experience just, just a lot easier. And it's even related to things as as like the rele- rele- uh, release of the endorphins, endorphins, you know, mm. Um, mm. getting that run as high afterwards. Well, like that, that is partly a result of an expectation effect. If you mm. see the kind of um, the slight mm. discomfort you're going through as something that's positive and beneficial, um, you're more likely to also have those endorphins that make you feel better afterwards.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, that's good. That's real good. Um just a lot there very much something that like I think all of us could would just bode well for us to like pay more attention to the thoughts that are going through our mind while we're exercising, while we're choosing foods, while we're doing I don't know any level of things that have to do with our health and our life in general because, you know, it's it's just something we overlook. We always want to look at the thing. What's the thing I'm going to do? What's the like you said what's the hard exercise hard workout I'm going to do today or what's the food I have to eat or what's the I don't know the thing I have to do to make more money instead of what's the mon- mindset that I need to have actually going into it
1: yeah exactly it's going back to that point you raised at the beginning you know of the conversation which is like what's the difference between like applying the expectation effect and just being this kind of uh positive thinker, this optimist and you know what yeah. I think like we've discussed discussed is that in each each of these cases cases we're actually actually just trying trying to be be a little bit objective about what we're looking at and and it's a case of seeing that you know even something something that might might cause discomfort like doing exercise exercise. you know you can interpret that 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 discomfort as something something that is negative and a sign of failure or you can see it as a sign of growth and it's just switching between the two without denying the fact that it, it can be a bit uncomfortable and you might not necessarily love it at first but you can see you can change the meaning that you attach to that and that's what really we're doing with all of the expectation effects It's just changing the meaning that we attach to different events and circumstances
0: very good all right we are coming up on an hour uh, one more question and you don't have to give up anything, but is there anything that you've been studying recently or that you've been writing about recently or that you have not written about yet that has been piquing your interest?
1: Uh, yeah, so there's a lot um, of research that I cover in my book about kind of the expectation effect on sleep. You know, If you expect and worry about having sleep loss, you're, gonna, um, you're more likely to experience insomnia and you're gonna have worse symptoms the next day, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so worse fatigue, worse concentration, you know, classic expectation effect. But what, you know, I've just been looking into research showing that that is also true and especially true for jet lag. So the more anxious that people are about jet lag before they travel, the worse their experience is. Interesting. Regardless of, you know, the length of their travel, the uh, direction of travel, you know, all of those objective factors that should shape how bad they feel. It's all about their expectations and worries about um, feeling kind of that general, general malaise when they get to their destination.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting. I, I mean, just, just appreciating the expectation effect for what it is, it, it makes sense.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. And that's what I think we're just gonna see so many more you know, new findings coming out all the time showing that expectation effects can you know, influence so much of our waking experience and even you know, how well we sleep.
0: Yeah. yeah the sleep thing definitely that was another like you know i, I think uh, maybe on a basic general level most people understand that like you know if you sit there and ruminate you're gonna not be able to fall asleep as well but also you know if you believe that you're kind of person or if you believe like oh, i'm just going to have a bad night's sleep going into the night like that that is going to have a drastic impact on how you're going to do as well
1: yeah exactly and it's you know waking, waking up, up like, like You can have like lots of small disturbances in your sleep, you know, a car door slamming and you wake up briefly. You know, if you have like a kind of more positive mindset, you can just kind of accept that you woke up briefly, but then you got back to sleep and it wasn't like this kind of catastrophe. Or you can like really like dwell on that fact that you didn't have a perfect night's sleep and and then tell yourself that that's gonna damage your performance the next day. And it's that belief that becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. so, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's really important for, you know, how we function day to
0: day. Very good. All right, David, I appreciate your time. Can't tell you how much I appreciate this book. It was it was very eye-opening for me. This is something, um, beliefs are something that I, you know, hang on to as far as, like, what you believe is what you get. And I think that this just, like, very much reinforced that. And I think that more people would do well to read your book and open up their eyes to like what what you're thinking in your mind and what you're expecting to get out of the world is what you're getting. I mean, it's exactly what you're getting. And if you start yeah. to shift that, it's gonna, it's gonna bode well for you.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think like what I tried to show in the book is that, you know, you can start off small, just kind of testing the waters by shifting your expectations, you know, day to day on like, you know, uh, any challenge that you're facing and that you'll find, you know, you might not experience miracles straight away, but you'll find that they build up, you know, over weeks and months that you will be really surprised by what you can achieve.
0: Very good. Um, where can we find you?
1: Um, so I'm on Twitter at D underscore A underscore Robson. I'm on Instagram, David A. Robson. And you can visit my website, David dot uh, where there's, you know, links to my Uh, to various various booksellers booksellers to buy my books, books, but also um, links to my articles, biography, and all of these things.
0: Very good. David, I appreciate your time, brother. I appreciate you again. Look forward to connecting more over email and something else in the future. But um, thanks so much for the work that you do.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for the great conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Most definitely, brother. Take care of yourself.
1: Thanks. Thanks. You too. (laughs)